On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, our guest is author Janine K. Brown, and she's going to explain and demonstrate for us in the Gospel of Matthew what it means to take a more narrative approach to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to read the Gospels as stories. I have been struck by how if we look at the Gospels as whole, sort of the whole vista of a Gospel, 28 chapters of Matthew, I would say, leaves you more breathless. It's like, wow, what did we just experience together? <laughs> that just helps us to really ground our Bible study well, a storied way of thinking about Matthew. So realizing that this is all related, Matthew mm. wrote the whole thing to tell us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Yeah, discover more about this storied way of thinking about how the Gospels tell the story of Jesus on this Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible, Discover the Word. And this week, three of our regular group members, Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day, have Janine K. Brown at the table with them. Janine is a professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary in Minnesota. And she's written a number of books, including one called The Gospels as Stories. And in that book, she shows how helpful a narrative approach to reading these four accounts of Jesus' life can be. Now, we tend to chop up the Gospels into small parts, you know, individual verses and events and parables, and really not consider quite as much the whole, and maybe what those individual parts contribute to the bigger story that the Gospel writer is telling. So I think this is going to be a really helpful hour that we spend together as we get to know Janine Brown better and discover how to take a narrative approach to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, it's good to welcome Janine Brown to our conversation as we begin to talk about something she has written extensively about, the Gospels as stories. And uh, that's something that we deal with actually quite a bit here on the program, isn't it, guys? Yeah, the Bible is a big story and full mm-hmm. of little stories, right? Yeah. yeah, And we spend a lot of time in the Gospels. <laughs> so. Yeah. so you're right in our wheelhouse, Janine. I was going to say, I'm, you're right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, then this ought to be good. We ought to have some fun this week. But um, give us a little bit of your background. Tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Um, I went to seminary when I was a young person at Bethel Seminary, where I now teach. And then I felt called to go on and do my PhD, and during that time, studied the Gospels, and the Gospel of Matthew particularly, and that's been where I've focused a lot of my energies since becoming a full-blown professor and uh, teach at Bethel Mm -hmm. and write in the area of how we study the Bible, what we call hermeneutics, but also Mm -hmm. the Gospels particularly. I'm just still over these many years drawn to these stories of Jesus and the way each Gospel writer tells that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how the gospel writers are telling the same story, but each one tells it a little bit differently and from different perspectives and for different audiences. And Matthew uh, is where you're going to land us for some conversations together as we look at some stories within the story that Matthew's telling, right? Yes. I want you to think about a time when you had um, a mismatched expectation or when you were caught off guard by <laughs> something, because we're going to see Peter in this story caught off guard. Hmm. I feel like every day I'm trying to think of a specific (laughs) one. I was just listening to a podcast actually where the person was talking about the definition of happiness is reality minus expectations. So when our expectations are overblown, how that can affect the way that we see what's going on around us and Hmm. trying to think of a good one off the top of my head, but I can't, but I know every day I run into (laughs) those moments of bigger expectations than the reality that is around me. I'll give you a really, really bottom shelf one. My wife and I were traveling. We uh, spent the night in a hotel. We got up in the morning to begin the next day of travel. We had about 10 hours of driving ahead of us. And I got up that morning really hungry. So we drove through a place to get some breakfast sandwiches to eat in the car and um, got our stuff, hopped on the interstate, started down the road. Marlene unpacked my sandwich and handed it to me. And I bit into it and it was frozen. Oh. <laughs> I was so excited for that nice hot breakfast sandwich. 
And it was awful. <laughs> That's so good. And you know, just on an everyday matter too, and I love how you both are saying it could be everyday. I think sometimes we enter holidays or celebrations with enormous expectations mm-hmm. and are often disappointed by the reality. And you know, just as an old lady, as a grandma, as a mom, you know, I've learned to kind of release those and mm-hmm. enter into whatever might happen. <laughs> so- <laughs> Clearly, I still haven't released that sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame you. You know, so Peter, um, has just in the context of Matthew 16, 21 through 28. So let's look at that text, Matthew okay. 16, 21. And right before this, Peter has proclaimed on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the mm, living God. Yeah. It's this high point in the gospel, the first time we really have this confession by anyone who's been following Jesus. And so you think this is going to be great now going forward, right? And so yes. Jesus <laughs> says almost immediately, if so somebody could read 16.21, Matthew 16.21, that'll get us the context now going forward. I'll grab that. Okay. From that time on, so right after that realization, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So a different kind of Messiah, it would seem. How did mm-hmm. Peter respond with the next verse? I don't know, Bill, you want to give us that one? Sure. And Peter took him aside, which is interesting all by itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. He took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that this should happen to you. Mm-hmm. So clearly... Peter does not understand the kind of Messiah now in Matthew we're hearing Jesus to be. So this mismatched mm-hmm. expectation. And I think it can really help us to think about what would Peter have expected. And here's where some good historical kind of background can help us see popular expectations about a um, political and religious Messiah. Those things went together in the first century world. But a Messiah that would march to Jerusalem with his followers and would get rid of these Romans. They're not supposed to be here. That's not part of God's plan for the people of God. So given that kind of picture, Jesus, he does say he's going to Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, that works. But that other part, what are you talking about here? There's a um, an immediate revulsion almost that we hear, mm-hmm. and Jesus has to do some work, some groundwork. So what do we see Jesus doing in his response to Peter in verses 23 and following? It feels like, especially us reading in a Western culture, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it feels like a very intense, strong response uh, mm-hmm. to Peter. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You are a stumbling block to me. You know, there's a lot of uh, scriptures that talk about not being a stumbling block. And here Jesus is calling Peter a stumbling block to himself, which seems pretty strong. Yeah. And Matthew does use that stumbling block motif himself. And believers are not to be a stumbling block for others. Now, uh, the word Satan means adversary, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so is... Jesus saying he's the embodiment of the Satan, capital S, or is he just being adversarial to what Jesus's mission is? Oh, that's a great question. It helps us to go back to chapter four of Matthew and see that Jesus has had this time of intense temptation and the devil has come to him, Satan has come to him and tempted him to not follow this mission to God's mission that leads him to the cross. And so it seems to me that we have to tap back into that. And Peter's in some way channeling Mm -hmm. the very temptation that he's felt before. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting as it goes on in verse 23, where Daniel was reading, is that you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human Mm -hmm. concerns, which really was uh, Matthew chapter 4, as you're talking about Jesus' interaction with Satan in the wilderness. Yeah. 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 And I like to note that, I mean, it's not that Jesus is only tempted once in the Gospel of Matthew. Mm -hmm. Here's a temptation (laughs) moment. And then in the garden... Ah. Another temptation moment at the uh, arrest when he, um, he could call upon legions of angels, he doesn't do so. It kind of helps us to hear that Jesus didn't put to bed temptation mm-hmm. at the beginning of his ministry. He continued to wrestle 
with temptation, but clearly came out the winner. Mm. Now, following that, in verse 24, and you said you were going to take us there, Janine, he talks about, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting that when Jesus is giving the description of what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem, he says he's going to be killed. He doesn't say it's going to be by crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So when he introduces the cross in verse 24, that would seem to add yet another layer of intensity to this conversation. That's a really good point. This is the first time we hear of Jesus's death explicitly. It rolls out more slowly than we might think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful to hear that the cross, which will become clear in Matthew later, this is Jesus's destiny specifically, is something that we're to pattern our lives after as well. Mm. Yeah. So that the sense of the cross-shaped or cruciform-shaped life Mm -hmm. that Jesus exhibited is in some way our lives as well. Yeah, I think, you know, the temptation that it seems like Jesus is being given here, and maybe it's the theme of many of his temptations, is like, take your life back into your own hands, Mm -hmm. Jesus, right? Like, take control, do what you think is best for yourself, which is something... I struggle with, (laughs) and I think Uh all of us struggle Uh with, right, to try to uh, take things into our own hands. So then that response, Bill, that you read, is us holding our our lives and all the things that we think are important loosely Mm. as a response to that temptation of take it into your hands, take control. Actually, the response is holding our lives loosely and following wherever God has for us to go. Don't you think also Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. This is my mission. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. Peter pushes back on it. And Jesus says, you think that's something. Look what's ahead for you. Because there's a piece of this for you as well, Peter, when he gets into the take up your cross part. Yeah. And we're going to see that they don't catch it really quickly. That's one mm-hmm. of the interesting pieces of the portrayal of the disciples in Matthew is Jesus will say this a number of times, and you know, as we get to chapter twenty, even James and John are asking for second and third positions in mm-hmm. the kingdom, which you know isn't very cross-shaped in their minds yet. You know, <laughs> right? It's king-shaped, yes, yeah. in mm-hmm. the way the Gentile kings in twenty twenty-five mm-hmm. um, do it, mm-hmm. not the way this king, the true king, will do it so differently. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful message, and. It's not just an example, as we'll see, too. It's something Jesus does on our behalf. You know, if Jesus were only our example, I think we'd kind of be in trouble. You know, because it's we can't follow that example without the presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And mm-hmm. that all comes to us because of what Christ did on the cross. So as we think about how do we lean into this, mm-hmm. I think, Bill, your point is, you know, and Daniel, you said this as well, this is not an easy path. What does it mean to pursue God's mission for us that looks much more to the interests of others than to our own self-fulfillment, self-promotion. Mm-hmm. How do we do that in life? One of the things I think that jumps out as well as you're even just saying that is looking ahead to verses 25 and 26. The purpose of holding all this loosely isn't just for the sake of holding it loosely. What Jesus leads them to and leads us to is you'll actually find true life. Mm. Like the letting go of this doesn't equal like, well, I'm just going to be miserable. It actually is leading to real life, true life. And so I think in practical ways, it can be, you know, really simple things in the way that we serve others or care for others. But the point of all that, what the gift is that God is offering is more full life, abundant life, true life by laying down our, our desires. That's a great insight. The gaining of life. It's paradoxical. You can hear it in those verses, right? If you try to gain it, you lose it. That is the pattern of Christian life. And I think we've probably each experienced it, and sometimes it's hard to describe it. And the order in which Matthew deals with it in this story that he's telling, Janine, is really important because unless Jesus does what he does in verse 21, there's no way we can ever do what we're Mm -hmm. called to do in verse 24. Mm -hmm. You said that so succinctly. That's wonderful. And looking at this one interaction between Peter and Jesus, and then as we put ourselves there, you know, is really this moment we enter the gospel as narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, we enter the gospel as story. This big idea threads through Mm -hmm. everything, doesn't it? And first Jesus, and then our, our response is just that. 
we can't out-initiate God, I always say. God is always out there first doing it for us. But it is important that we follow. And I'm looking forward to hearing more of how this narrative approach to reading and studying the Gospels will help us to see more clearly that following Jesus means following his mission. And I think reading the Gospels as stories will help us to identify what Jesus said that mission is. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and our special guest, Janine Brown, who's leading us in this series called The Gospels as Stories. Janine is at her home in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, Elisa is in Colorado. Bill's in North Carolina. And Daniel and I are in Michigan. And uh, you, well, you are where you are. And we're glad you're here with us. So let's turn now to Matthew chapter 17 and explore how something Jesus said about the disciples' faith moves along how Matthew is telling the story of Jesus' life and mission. I'm going to have you think about a time when you experienced a little faith moment, hmm. when you were, had less than you had hoped for. Mm-hmm. I would say practically every day, honestly. And I'm humbled to admit that. But, you know, I might come up to a family situation where, oh, let's say a teenager gets a traffic ticket and I start fearing for their future. And I forget that Mm. we've been here before Mm. in some place and God will provide and even use this in all of our lives if we allow him. Or I think about a financial need where the need is just way beyond. And I start fretting over and I forget that in so many times past, God has provided exactly what was needed. So yeah, I kind of live in this world of little (laughs) faith. And one thing I've been encouraged by is sometimes I've learned from God that a little faith is enough faith. You know, just do you have even a little that could get you by? That's kind of where I was going, Elisa, because to me, it seems like the space that I live in is the space of, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. That's the pressure point that I feel. I know God, I trust him, I believe him, but. (laughs) I really resonate with that as well. The people and things that matter most to me are the places where my faith seems weakest because Mm -hmm. the stakes seem so high. Can I trust God with my family? Like Mm -hmm. you were saying, Elisa. Mm -hmm. Those are the biggest questions for me. Mm. Knowing that we have a God who cares deeply certainly helps us out. And in this passage, when we move into Matthew 17, 14 through 20, we're going to see the disciples struggle with little faith, as they have if we take a storied approach to Matthew throughout the gospel. You know, before we go there, maybe expand on that. If we take a storied approach, that's the unique perspective that you're bringing into our conversations. And can you elaborate on that a little bit more, a storied approach? Absolutely. I have been struck by how if we look at the gospels as whole, sort of the whole vista of a gospel, 28 chapters of Matthew, I would say, leaves you more breathless than certain in the end. It's like, wow, what did we just experience together? So anytime we jump in like we are now into this Matthew 17, kind of this whole Matthew 16 through 20 section we're looking at, it helps us to place that story by thinking back and forward. What have we seen already? Where are we going? That just helps us to really ground our Bible study well. It's not something that only sort of experts can do. I really love that a storied way of thinking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John can really help us look ourselves and say, oh yeah, I saw that earlier in Matthew. So realizing that this is all related. Matthew didn't write a chapter and say, here, take that for a Mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. Matthew wrote the whole thing to tell us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's super helpful. I think it's really good, Janine, that um, you put out there that you don't have to be some kind of an expert or something to do this. That resonated with me because, I mean, from our earliest childhood, we're told stories, whether it's bedtime stories or fairy tales, or then you, you go to Sunday school and you hear Bible stories. Then we start watching TV and we get story. I mean, it seems like so much of life we're being asked to process stories. And so Mm -hmm. what we do kind of naturally there, if we intentionally Mm -hmm. apply it to the scriptures, that sounds like what you're leading us into. Yeah. And I think not only do you not have to be an expert to approach it as story, but it actually is more freeing to be able to approach each of these gospels as stories. Because instead of worrying about I wonder what this word was in the Greek and what it really meant. Or, (laughs) you know, what is the historic symbolism that's present here? By just reading through the whole thing as a story and letting it wash over you, 
you're invited into the story to be shaped by it Mm -hmm. and begin to see God and the world and yourself differently. And so in some ways, I think it makes the Bible much more accessible to not worry about all the technical stuff, but just to dive into the story and see where it goes. Absolutely. So let's practice that on this passage and on the little faith that we hear in verse 20. Somebody summarize the story of the the three coming down from the mountain with Jesus and then coming into the situation where something's happened. What's happened? So we're in Matthew 17, and this is the story of the transfiguration, correct? Yeah, Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been on the mount where transfiguration has happened, as Elisa said. They come down to where the other disciples are waiting, and they find them in an argument with the religious leaders. And they also find them in a situation to where there's a man who has brought a demonized son to them for healing. Actually, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there, so he asked them, and they weren't able to do anything about it. And so Jesus responds by healing the boy and uh, delivering him to his dad. And that's when the interaction, I guess, between Jesus and the nine disciples begins. And that's where this little faith thing happens too, right? Is that what you're referring to? Right, because they say, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says in verse 20, because you have so little faith. Yeah, Mm yeah. And a storied look, I mean, we could all read through Matthew and say, oh, I heard this term before. And Jesus calls his disciples as he speaks to them on the Sermon on the Mount. Those are little faith, chapter 6. And then on the storm at sea, chapter 8, there they are, little faith ones again. And Hmm. uh, at a few other points, 14 and 16. So it's not a new problem for them. And yet it Mm -hmm. continues. And we think, well, I don't know, I couldn't do this kind of miracle or healing or exorcism. But in chapter 10, verse 1, we hear that Jesus has given the 12 power to do just this. So in the story, we hear, oh my goodness, they're enabled to do it. Mm. And what's the problem? Little faith. What does that look like? What is that about? So he diagnoses their little faith as a problem. And we can hear in the wider context, some of that has to do with not trusting fully in what Jesus can do. That's kind of a key Mm. part of that. And then what does he say? In addition to that, how does he talk about faith in this passage? This Verse 20 is kind of longish. Yeah. It says that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he's talking to his disciples, you will say to this mountain, I'm guessing it's the mountain they just came down from the transfiguration, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And they had just witnessed this amazing, stunning miracle, right? It is this experience they've had with Jesus all the way through. They have seen a lot of miracles. They've seen God in Jesus do so much. Mm -hmm. But there's something missing. There's a missing piece. Yeah, and, you know, I try to, every now and then, you know, if I'm in my right mind, what I know is I'm probably no different than those guys. I would have struggled. I mean, they're seeing things nobody's ever seen before. They're hearing things nobody's ever heard before. They're in the presence of someone who is utterly and completely different from everyone they've ever known. And so they really don't have a reference point for any of this. And so for them to have some points of struggle along the way feels kind of natural to me. Yeah. And Janine, what do you think the tone that Jesus has here is? Like, is he attacking them or insulting them? Or is he like a friendly chide or, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) This is such an interesting question. We don't have tone in the text, and I've had students this in part because they did an assignment on this theme of little faith. I don't ask them specifically, but I have students say really explicitly in the paper, this is a gentle, oh, you have little faith, and others, <laughs> oh, oh, you, I mean, they hear different tones depending on that, and mm. part of it is you have to read the whole story, and I do think the whole story gives us a picture of Jesus forbearing with his disciples. When he says, Mm. oh, you generation, how long will I be with you? You know, you can hear again that in a couple different ways. No, that's a broader statement. The generation is a bigger picture. But um, this sense that he bears with his disciples, and at the end of the gospel, Mm -hmm. they still, they worship, but they doubt. Chapter 28, verse 17, or 16, 17. So Hmm. I think there is a bearing with that I hear in the midst of this. You know what hits me, Janine, is that what you're expressing in terms of how we interpret Jesus' tone goes back to often how we may have just focused in myopically on one little tiny interaction rather than the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself how that also forms our 
image of God. Mm-hmm. But we'll just pick and choose various interactions of Jesus with the crowd or with ourselves or with Peter or whatever and decide, well, that's who he is, rather than looking at the character yeah. that's expressed throughout the narrative and letting that inform us. This is really helpful to see how I can pick and choose and I can go way off on tangent somewhere and miss the bigger picture of God's character. And don't you think also there's a sense in which we kind of import ourselves onto it. I mean, you know, uh, if you've come up in a tradition that's very rigid and stiff and demanding and legalistic, Mm -hmm. then you're probably going to read Jesus's tone as a bit more harsh. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you come from one that's more welcoming and warm and kind, Mm -hmm. maybe you will hear this differently because that's the way you're used to hearing these kinds of stories anyway. Yeah. And I think also what I'm hearing in all this too as you're talking about Jesus's love being forbearing. That's the very definition we're given of God's love in the Old Testament. So knowing the whole story through, right? God's love is Mm -hmm. long suffering. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. And so Jesus is kind of picking up on that same tone and pushing it forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also have in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, come to me for I'm gentle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that seems to speak into these kind of interactions too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as we turn the corner to think about how we apply this, I feel like we're already doing that. It's really helpful to um, hear how Matthew's using that disciple's portrayal to say both, you can do better as a reader, as an experiencer of the story, and also look at how Jesus forbears, cares, Mm -hmm. and is gentle, patient all the way through. And they are restored at the end after denying him, after fleeing from him. So there's kind of both and, both let's hear the kindness of Jesus to us and we know more than the disciples did in a sense here, even though we didn't experience everything they did fully. There's a little faith in us and in the disciples that we relate to that when we bring it to Jesus, um, he inhabits with his character, with the whole picture, to make it enough Mm. faith. Excellent. Yeah, just as Jesus was patient with his disciples when they struggled to understand and believe, uh, he's patient with us as well. And like Elisa said, it takes that little bit of faith we have and makes it enough faith. When we continue, uh, children enter the narrative of Matthew's gospel. It's almost impossible not to smile when you hear a baby or children laughing and being happy, isn't it? Well, Jesus uses a child as an object lesson in describing his mission and our mission after this message. Stories are hardwired into our nature. We just get them and easily connect with their plots and settings and characters. And yet for all our familiarity with reading and watching stories, we often struggle to apply the same mindset when we read the Gospels. Now in Janine K. Brown's book, The Gospels as Stories, you'll be challenged to read each Gospel as a whole narrative and discover how to apply a story-based interpretive approach to all four of the Gospels. And when you learn to see each of the Gospels as a cohesive narrative, well, they come to life as never before. I think Discover the Word group members will find this a really interesting and helpful read. The book is called The Gospels as Stories by Janine K. Brown. And this book is what introduced us to Janine, and so we reached out to her because we really wanted her to go through this with us on Discover the Word. So you can find a link to order a copy of her book, The Gospels as Stories, online on our discovertheword.org website. And now Janine advances the storyline of Matthew by going to chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18, 1 through 14 today. And at the early part of Matthew 18, Jesus uses the example of a child. So it invites us to think about children (laughs) and what that example means. So do some free association. What do you think about when I say the word children? You know, it's going to depend a lot on your season of life. You know, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I would think, ugh. You know, when I was a young mom, I'd think I'm tired. As a grandma, I'm like, delight. You know, so <laughs> I'm with you there. I think it depends on the child. <laughs> if they're your grandchildren or somebody else's. Well, you know, I, that's exactly where I was going to go. I think my grandkids are fabulous. I'm not quite so patient with everybody else's. <laughs> so rambunctious might be a word that comes to mind, Bill. 
or playful. Playful is the positive yeah. side. Sounds like your house, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, I have three kiddos at home, so mm-hmm. um, children usually I picture three faces in my head, and all mm-hmm. of the ups and downs and sideways that comes with three kids. And you know, then another way to take it, Janine, is. And I do this sometimes is I go to myself as a child, mm-hmm. you know, I, I shrink down because that's a vibrant memory, I think, in all of us, you know, what we were like as children, what life was like when we were children. This is really helpful to get some real tangible kind of pictures in our minds, because as we come to Matthew 18, Jesus kind of uses a child as an object lesson mm-hmm. to show something. So as we start the passage, let's think about what we bring and what Matthew might expect us to fill in the blank with in terms of a child. Mm. Would somebody read chapter 18, verses 1 through 2? I can. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them. So right away we hear this child is going to be some example about kingdom and kingdom greatness, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. And wouldn't this be incredibly surprising in that moment? In the ancient world, the adult male is kind of the epitome of what you wanted to be in terms of rationality, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. children didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Parents loved their children. Parents valued their children, of course, but in, in the sense of cultural value and status value and having kind of a stake in the conversation. We'll hear a little later in chapter 19, you know, if we're thinking about the story of Matthew, disciples will turn children away from Jesus because that's what they do. I mean, not just them, but that's yeah. what anybody would do. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, no, he values them. So we have to listen to Matthew to hear how Jesus is using the child as an example. So, Elisa, would you read verses 3 and 4? Sure. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And verse 4, kind of, you can hear that there's answering mm-hmm. that question. So how does verse 4 answer what that child is about? What kingdom? Well, it's interesting because I like Elisa's translation better than mine because mine says, whosoever then humbles himself as this <laughs> child. And that kind of feels more religious, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, to me, but... What was yours again, Elisa? Whoever takes the lowly position of this Mm. child will Mm. become the greatest. What a contrast, lowly and greatest. Yeah, that seems to fit more into the way you were describing children in the first century, the lowly place of this child, the way they were viewed in their culture. Yeah, so status. So disciples, who is greatest? And Jesus takes one that would never be an example of status and says, here, here's what you should think about status in the kingdom. Maybe you have the wrong categories. That's kind of my colloquial way of thinking about that. But yes, humility, the language here, can be an internal attitude, Mm -hmm. which again sounds kind of that religious attitude, which is a good thing, but it also can be an external reality. Mm -hmm. The word can mean either, and I think the translation, Elisa, you used, emphasizes that external reality, which is quite appropriate. What's intriguing to me is that verse 3, when Jesus essentially doesn't answer their question right away. He answers it in verse 4, but in verse 3 he says, unless you become a change and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I can always imagine the disciples saying, well, we didn't ask about kingdom entry. We're your 12 <laughs> followers. I think we got that one in the bag. So he answers this with this really strong language and say, you got to wake up here. There's something mm-hmm. you're not yeah. getting. And then this way of saying the kingdom's not about greatness and leastness and and status, because that's status language. Yeah. No, that's a big word too, right? The kingdom of heaven. Yes. What within the bigger story of Matthew would Jesus be driving at using that concept? That's a great question. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven much like Mark and Luke use kingdom of God. So God's reign, God's rule, the kingdom. So it's bigger than just heaven. Mm -hmm. Heaven is kind of sort of the smaller entity underneath this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God picture. When God makes all things right and is reigning fully, that will be the fullness of the kingdom. And how would the disciples have heard that, Janine? Would they have heard it that way? Or would they have heard it like we've been talking more in an earthly kingdom with an earthly king? Um, I think they would have heard it as an earthly reality that Jesus was promising to bring to fruition, bringing to pass. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, would usher in all of the heavenly realities with that. I mean, it's kind of a both Mm -hmm. and in their minds, probably, but they're not hearing it 
as Matthew puts it out there, as a already but not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's beginning in Jesus's ministry, but it's not going to be working out in Jesus's ministry as you'd expect. Yeah. In other words, going to Jerusalem, sitting on a throne, and ruling mm-hmm. now. Instead, there is a cross and a resurrection mm-hmm. and a final coming of the kingdom in fullness. And it's this two-age, two-stage kind of thing. In Jewish expectation, we have two ages. Present age, evil age, age to come, kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And it's seen in sort of one stage. But in Jesus's teaching, it's a two-stage kind of movement toward the new age of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a sense with that kingdom of heaven? Because Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and there's a sense in which Jewish people did not use the name God freely. And so the title kingdom of heaven, they used heaven as kind of a substitute for God. Is that right? Yes. I mean, some debate on exactly why that language shows up here, but that makes a lot of sense that they use it as what's called a circumlocution, but a substitute for um, the name of God. So it's not meant to be a different concept. Kingdom of heaven is not different in a concept from kingdom of God or just kingdom. So it is a way of being very respectful and not overusing Mm -hmm. the name of God. So to go back into our bigger focus here, you know, with your expertise of seeing the Gospels as stories, you know, Jesus is dealing in this couple of verses that we picked out, which we tend to do, and we focus it on these verses, but then they connect to the bigger narrative, you know, the thread that goes through. Why is this story here in Matthew 18? Oh, that's a great question. Um, We will see in chapters 18 through 20, the theme of um, kingdom and status not connected. In other words, Jesus trying to dislodge this idea that the kingdom is all about status, because we'll hear language of greatness again in chapter 20. And first and last language, this is all status language, and the disciples really latching on to status. And if a rich man can't be saved, who in the world can be saved? Chapter 19. So there's a lot of assumptions about what the kingdom should look like Mm -hmm. based on what worldly kingdoms look like. And they've not seen that the kingdom that Jesus brings is quite different. And wasn't that especially, not just worldly kingdoms, wasn't that especially rooted in the way that Jewish thinking thought about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and how you got in and how you missed out, that there was a lot of status orientation even in the way they practiced Judaism? Yeah, I think they participated in their cultural context quite well. (laughs) I mean, the Greco-Roman world and uh, the ways Jews understood themselves within that. I mean, they certainly thought of the final kingdom as both a religious and a spiritual and a political reality. Those things, again, were tied together in the first century world, not easy Mm -hmm. to pull apart. But there was this sense of who's on top. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a very human thing. We like to say, no, I'm the most important I see it even in my grandson. He's only one. <laughs> we allow those things. I always say, you know, my job as a parent, kids aren't naturally humble. My job mm-hmm. as a parent was to get them to be clear that they weren't the center of the universe by the time they left the house at 18 or whatever. <laughs> we needed to help them understand that they're to serve and to care and to not be at the center. And that goes back to that cross-shaped thing we were talking about mm-hmm. in an earlier conversation that the whole point of Jesus's mission is to demonstrate that real, meaningful, purposeful life is self-sacrificial serving Mm -hmm. of the needs of others, which he ultimately did on the cross, right? Yes, yes. And the rest of chapter 18 that we won't be able to look at as closely, 6 through 14, is really about that the little ones, now a bigger category than children, but that uh, the little ones are those we are to care for, the vulnerable, the weak, those are most prone to stray potentially, just kind of this group that Already in the story of Matthew, we've heard about in chapter 1042, little ones. And now we hear we're to care for them deeply because God cares for them deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've talked about kind of what the kingdom of heaven means and kind of what it means to become like a child, which is not pursuing status, but approaching life, I guess, with open hands. But there's still that word enter that's tripping me up. What would it mean in this story to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because we've often heard that language, I guess, with evangelism of like become a Christian. But this seems like Jesus is describing it in a little bit different of a way. Yeah, and I hear it primarily in this context as a, a way to wake up the disciples to not presume upon 
their place. Hmm. Not that they can't rest assured that Jesus has them in his hands, but there's a lot of presumption that starts to show up in this part of Matthew. Hmm. And the warnings that go in here at the end of chapter 19, for example, um, whoever's first will be last, last will be first. You know, this kind of sense of trying to dislodge this sense of God owes me something. Hmm. So I think the sense of entering as a child is... We aren't owed something by God. We receive, like you say, with open hands. I love the language of open hands. I think that helps us to hear the stance we're to have before God. I hear what you're saying, Janine, and I go back to the whole idea of status and the disciples. You know, you kind of paraphrase their mindset might have been earlier. We're already in. We've taken care of that. We're one of your 12 followers. That's a statement of status. And you have to abandon any claim to status and just receive in order to enter the kingdom. and Taking it, a lowly position. Yeah. 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 And in chapter 20, we'll look at the parable in chapter 20. That's a beautiful parable of God's amazing grace mm. that makes all of this even possible. Our thoughts about entering the kingdom come from the grace of God. You know, people seem to have an innate sense of fairness, something we all share. We're quick to highlight a lack of fairness, especially when we're experiencing it. I have to tell a story of my five-year-old daughter, Libby. She's no no longer five, but she would frequently complain. (laughs) And she had a little speech issue. No pair, no pair, poor me. And (laughs) it was frequent enough that I thought, okay, this innate sense of fairness. Have you experienced that? What is your sense of how we think about fairness, equality? Things being equal. I think we view it as a human right. (laughs) And it starts out young. I agree with you. Even though we sort of come out of it, I think we always hold that in the back of our head that life is supposed to be fair. But I think especially we think life is supposed to be fair for me. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think we tend to be as overly concerned about fairness for everybody else. And yet, I mean, I think we all immediately would acknowledge that every one of us is an image bearer made in the image of God. Therefore, everyone should be of equal value. Therefore, should be treated fairly. I would love to just say that it's my kids that I hear it in, but it surprises (laughs) me how often I find myself thinking that, even if maybe my maturity keeps me from saying it out loud. (laughs) And, uh, And it can be in such subtle ways, like at work, when someone has worked hard and they're given recognition by a boss or one of the leaders in the organization. And I think to myself, instead of celebrating for them, Mm -hmm. I think, but I worked hard this last couple of weeks. Why am I not up front getting (laughs) celebrated? And anyway, so so, honest. And Daniel, you you get the segue award because that just leads us right into the parable of the first and the last of our workers in Matthew Mm. 20, one through 16. I didn't know we had a segue award. That's not fair. Why can't I have one? I got the first one. (laughs) No, the problem is Bill's going to say, that's not fair. I was a segue person last time around. (laughs) (laughs) So this parable is really powerful, you know, story that Jesus told to get their attention, get the disciples' attention about something in this context. Does somebody want to summarize it? It's basically about workers in a vineyard Mm -hmm. who start work at different times of day, Mm -hmm. some super early in the morning, some way before the whistle would blow as you would have it, you know, to say the, the work is ended. And at the end of the day, they all get paid the same amount, no matter Mm -hmm. how long Mm -hmm. they had toiled. And they don't see that as fair. Yes. Yes. And I mean, let's be real. If we were in the same boat, we would also feel the same way. Because I think we're there's... meant to identify with the yeah. first hour workers. Oh, I have no trouble identifying with <laughs> yeah. them. I mean, okay, if he gave the guy at the end the denarius, which is a day's wage in that mm-hmm. culture, then probably I ought to get a denarius and a half anyway, yeah, just because exactly. I work so much longer. I mean, if they're getting that, then I ought to get a bonus. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of the way right. it feels. And quite frankly... Even though the owner of the vineyard or whatever it is makes the statement, it's my money, I can do with it as I want. I find that a little unsatisfying. And I think we're meant to. I kind of feel like, come on, man. Okay, but let's just pause just a second. There are moments when we are on the other end and receive the extra grace. I mean, you're sitting there in line at the grocery store with 15 carts in front of you, fully laden. You've got two things. And a clerk comes up and says, here, I'll take you over here, ma'am. I love that moment. And I'm like, yes, and off I go. 
it's true. It's good to note that different people reading this parable might identify, mm -hmm. some might identify with the 11th hour workers, as they're called. But then they go back, Janine, to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that we tend to judge the fairness of fairness by how it affects me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. We become yep. the center, the standard. Yeah. And it's important, Bill, you raised the first hour workers are promised a denarius, a day's wage. It's a fair wage. They do the work. It would all be fine if they had been paid first and let yeah. go. But, of course, the story only works because they're paid last and they have to listen to the 11th and all the ones in between and think, okay, mm -hmm. you're right, I'm going to get a bonus here. I find it really powerful to hear the sort of the climax of the story, the point at which they complain. So somebody read verse 12 with a lot of emotion. <laughs> Ooh, I can try. <laughs> if it's not good enough, then we'll have Elisa or Bill do it. <laughs> this is Matthew chapter 20, verse 12. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have made them equal to us. The effrontery of the parable is that they have been made equal to those who did not do equal work. And that feels almost like it goes back to where we were in our last conversation about status, Janine. Why are mm. you making them as good as us? We did more. Yes. Yeah. And here's this thread of narrative again. You know, we tend to look at these individual stories and forget they all thread mm -hmm. together. Yeah. Yeah. And in the very last part of chapter 19 that sets up this story, we have Peter saying, we've left everything. What will we have? Mm -hmm. So it's a lovely intro. And Jesus says, you, you'll be okay. I mean, here's what you'll have. And many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And that's where this parable ends. So there's this mm -hmm. lovely kind of bookending mm -hmm. around the parable of just making sure you're not presuming as if you presume because now we know you, Jesus, and we've known you first, mm -hmm. that somehow that is going to give us more, you know, this desire for more than the other, of whatever it is. You know, I'm going to pause right here and just say, I, I didn't realize how this concept of fairness had infiltrated my thinking until, like you were saying, Daniel, your illustration so honest about somebody else getting praise. But I think it also comes back to not only do we interpret fairness based on what happens to us, Bill, as you were saying, we have this kind of concept of fairness that only one person gets it. Mm -hmm. You know, when we all can be treated equally, that changes me and my understanding of God's love. Does that make sense? Yes. And a theology of fullness mm -hmm. versus scarcity mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like yeah. that, that God has enough for mm -hmm. all of us. Yeah. God is not a zero-sum proposition. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. there's more than enough to go around. And I know this whole conversation is taking me back to my very early days as a follower of Jesus. And it was in a tradition which was um, Southern fundamentalist. Uh, I won't use any other words, but I mean, there was this sense of the thief on the cross kind of gets in by the skin of his teeth, but you know, you're going to be serving Jesus your whole life. So just imagine the rewards waiting for you. <laughs> that poor thief on the cross, you know, you get a mansion over a hilltop, he might get a shack on the side of the road, you mm. know. And as I'm hearing this, I'm hearing the echoes of that in my mind and thinking, wow, how misleading is it to take all of these things and keep turning it back to what we do as opposed to what God does on our behalf. And that's really what this parable is about, right, is about what mm -hmm. God does. You know, I think um, we talk a lot, Janine, on this show about Kenneth E. Bailey and his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and the sections mm -hmm. on parables that yeah. he talks about. And he recommended renaming this not the parable of the laborers, but of the generous landowner, yeah. because it is more about the landowner and, and what the landowner is doing, which is he's being generous. And that's how God treats us, is he is generous towards us. Yeah. So read, let's read 20 verse 15. Yeah. Daniel, again, gets a segue away. <laughs> Two and one. Where's mine? Yeah. <laughs> it's not fair. It makes me mad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somebody read 20 verse 15, the final words of the landowner. Don't I have the right? to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So he suggests they're not as mad about fairness as they are about God's generosity. So sit with that one a minute, because that always bends my mind a bit. Yeah. So they are mad that it's not fair, but are they really mad because 
of the generosity of the landowner, who, of course, stands in for God. Hmm. This really would run smack in the face of the very legalistic Jewish leaders who everything was right, and that was the way they measured value, to include heathens like Gentiles, to include all people to know that the opportunity to know God. This is just smack dab in the face of so many of our issues, isn't it? Yeah, and the 12 in the immediate context, their kind of assumption because they've been first, what will we who have been first, what will we have? Mm -hmm. And Jesus says plenty in a sense, and then tells this parable. It's lovely to reflect on God's grace and generosity kind of through this parable and through other parts of Matthew as well. I don't think I really fully get it much of the time, but it's like, do I really see God as this generous, generous God where there is not a scarcity in the kingdom related to God's love and care and provision? Yeah, I heard somebody say that sometimes we think of God responding to our needs with a medicine dropper when actually he's got a bucket that he's ready to pour out. And his abundance is not the issue. I think our perspective of him and his grace really becomes the issue. How, how we view him is a lot more important than how we view the denarius he gives. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at God's generosity. And that's a tough parable because our feelings about fairness and status are in a lot of ways contrary to what Jesus was saying. But I think reading the Gospels for their storyline, reading the Gospels as stories, is helping us more clearly see that following Jesus means following his mission to serve others rather than focusing on self-promotion and self-interest. And so we will conclude this conversation with Janine Brown about the Gospels as stories by talking about the paradox of a king who serves and what that means for us after this word about what's coming in our next Discover the Word podcast. Over the years on Discover the Word, some of our best Bible studies have happened when one of our group members noticed something they hadn't noticed before in a passage of Scripture and spent some time following the thread. And that's what happened recently to Daniel Ryan Day. He was reading a familiar section in the Gospel of Mark, the one about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And he paused at what seemed like a random reference to wild beasts. But what he discovered is that wild beasts show up in a number of ways throughout Scripture. And those wild beasts actually point to Jesus. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. In our next podcast, we're going to pull on that thread and see what unravels. You don't want to miss Daniel and Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder following the thread of Wild Beasts next time here on Discover the Word. And now the conclusion of our conversation with Janine Brown about the Gospels as stories. Janine, this has been um, eye-opening and also kind of a lot of fun as, mm-hmm. as you've helped us understand or just start to look for the thread that goes through the Gospels. You know, each one will have different pieces, and we tend to just pick a passage and look mm-hmm. at it mm-hmm. intently, and that's good. That's a neat practice, but we mm-hmm. need to make sure we also look at it in light of what came before it and what comes after it, mm-hmm. and because the Gospels are stories. Yeah, I think to the old expression of uh, you can't see the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think that's the way we approach scripture, we come at an individual story as a tree, mm-hmm. and we miss the scope of the forest, which is so magnificent. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking of um, a Bible that I was given one time that didn't have any chapters and verses in it. Mm. And so I would read through Matthew without like in my head thinking, okay, today's devotion time, let's read one chapter mm-hmm. and just reading. And it's amazing how the story kind of unfolds and you see themes and you get pulled into the story more and all that. And so it's been fun to revisit the fact that these were first stories. You know, Daniel, that's such a good point, because if you're going to read a novel or watch a film, we've been trained to watch for symbolism or watch for unfolding of the story or watch for clues, even in a detective. And we lose that holistic view when we come in and just mine a passage. So Mm -hmm. Janine, these have been really helpful conversations. Oh, I'm so glad. And I encourage people to listen to... um, a gospel a few times as well, because that just helps you 
hear it and hear it in a few settings. And um, there's just a variety of ways you can kind of get that whole picture. Yeah. Well, we are turning to Matthew 20, 17 through 28. Hmm. It's the last time Jesus predicts his um, coming death in this section of Matthew, Matthew 16 through 20. Three times he does. And as we get started, I want us to think about... um, a game we used to play when we were kids called King of the Hill. <laughs> that idea of being on top and protecting that turf and pushing people down. And that whole tendency in our humanness to want to be on top. See, we growing up, we spent a lot of time at the lake. And so we played a different version where it was King of the Raft. Oh, that's fun. And that, I think, was a little more innocent because it was fun to get pushed into the water, right, on yeah. a warm summer day. And it didn't hurt a, so much. Yeah, it didn't hurt <laughs> right. so much. But it still is tapping into this idea that this desire to be at the top. And yeah. we're going to see in this passage that James and John and all the disciples actually are quite interested in that being on top kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe if we could read first um, Matthew twenty seventeen through 19, it's the third passion prediction that it's called. We hear this really important theme throughout Matthew 16 through 20 that Jesus keeps on reminding the disciples what he is going to be doing in Jerusalem. Verse 17 of Matthew 20, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So a really important moment. These are very sobering moments. The first two, one in chapter 16, one in chapter 17, Peter said, oh, no, this isn't going to happen to you. We talked about that. And in Mm -hmm. 17, the disciples grieve deeply. They're deeply troubled by this. Mm. The very next thing we hear in this chapter is the mother of the Zebedee's sons, James and John, come to Jesus with her sons and then ask him a favor. So right after hearing about Jesus' coming death, I'm going to have somebody else, maybe Daniel, you can read 20 through 23, actually. Yeah, I started to read ahead as you were, so I started chuckling because you're right. Compared to the first two emotional, negatively emotional responses, this one's almost kind of humorous in a way. Unless you're the mom. Okay, keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." So what's the picture here? They're asking, and I'm going to say they because the, even the yous that Jesus talks about, are you able to, those are already plurals. So the whole group mm-hmm. is coming. So what are they asking? And how does Jesus picture the kingdom in slightly different terms? They're asking for a podium finish. I mean, in NASCAR, they say the second place is first loser. But in Formula One racing, they have a podium finish where first, second, and third all get awards. So they're asking for a podium finish. Mm -hmm. Second and third, not first, but second and third. Yeah. Yeah. And this theme is just threaded throughout. I mean, we've been looking at it all week in terms of, you know, that you need to take the lowly position mm-hmm. of a child. You know, you need to understand that everybody can be paid the same at the end of the day for work that isn't equal. Just on and on mm-hmm. and on, Jesus is threading this, this topsy-turvy value of yes. all human beings. Yeah, and it feels to me, and I'm trying to figure out, is this me reading it as a Westerner, or is this how the original audience would have heard these words? But it feels very gutsy to come to Jesus and ask this of him. Yeah. Almost like everybody else would be around watching this happen and going, did you hear what she just asked? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, yeah, verse 24, when the 10 heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And, I, you mm. know, we don't have mm. much more than that. Are they mad at their audacity or that they didn't get there first? Or Mm -hmm. it's certainly given the portrayal up to this point, they're all thinking still in status terms. The kingdom is about status and we'll have that really close to Jesus status. And let's make sure I get to ask about the second and third slots. And Elisa, what you said earlier about the threads and the stories we've been seeing all week as they come together in, in Matthew's 
story. I go back to that very first one that we saw where after Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus announces for the first time he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, and Peter pushes back, no, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you're going to pay a price too. And it's almost mm-hmm. like the same thing here. That's mm-hmm. right. Jesus says, I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified. And they say, yeah, but we want this. And Jesus says, there's a cup for you too. Yeah. What does that language mean, a cup for you too? You're going to yeah. drink my cup. In the Old Testament, cup language, there are some that have positive associations of cup of salvation, but mm-hmm. the majority of them are um, a cup of anger or a cup of um, you know suffering. And clearly in Matthew chapter 26, we'll hear about the cup. Mm-hmm. Jesus prays. Take this cup. Mm-hmm. In the Gethsemane-related mm-hmm. cup. Yeah, take this cup. So in this context is suffering, and there's a good precedent in the Old Testament for that. So, mm-hmm. But it could be ambiguous for them because there is a, mm-hmm. a language of cup of salvation in the Old Testament. So they still may not be quite gathering mm-hmm. the import. I'm struck by how many different strata of people approach Jesus or he speaks to them about these uh, topsy-turvy values. Now we have a woman. You know, we've had children used. We've had leaders used. We've had disciples used. We've had different uh, followers Mm -hmm. used. And now we've got a woman as well, and the mother. And it's so pervasive that all of us are fighting against this, you know, Mm -hmm. receive rather than earn. It's not just the 12 disciples. Though they are a focus in this part of Matthew, it is is much bigger than that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Yeah, it Mm -hmm. seems like we're all pushing against the possibility that somehow I might be diminished. Yeah. That somehow I might not get what's mine. I mean, we mm-hmm. see all these commercials on TV, get everything you're entitled to, get everything mm-hmm. you deserve. And Rights language, right? Yeah. It's this entrapment of, mm-hmm. I want to look out for me and everybody else can look out for them instead of where you had us at the very beginning of all this, Janine, that real love and real service in the kingdom comes about sacrificing for others, mm-hmm. not about getting for self. Yeah. yeah, And as Jesus has himself shown to be the case, which was our first passage we looked at. So, mm-hmm. Elisa, would you read 25 through 28? Because that's kind of the culmination of the whole of these chapters, 16 through 20. Wow, okay. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Those are amazing verses. And we can hear how, just as Jesus brought a child in the midst to say, status, um, Mm. maybe ask a different question about the kingdom. Here, servant, slave, again, no status uh, in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Those categories are on the bottom rung. So that becomes the example for the disciple again. It's amazingly countercultural. And I would Mm -hmm. say not just then, but today as well. So what do you hear there that really resonates with what you've heard in Matthew so far? Well, what I'm hearing, Janine, is an inclusio where you have an idea at the beginning and then you have a lengthy section and an idea at the end. And what began with Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed, he ends with the son is going to lay down his life as a ransom. Mm -hmm. So you have laying down his life, laying down his life, and all this in between is kind of like an explanation of what that's all about. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about how as disciples, here are how, here's how we are to live. But I, it's really helpful to bring us back to this is about Jesus. This section is Christological. It's about who Jesus is as the Messiah, not a usual kind of expected Messiah. Mm-hmm. And then in response, we should take on that kind of cross-shaped way of living. But it is really important to say this is not just about how we live. This section of Matthew is about who Jesus is fundamentally, what his Messiahship will look like. Um, And I think that's the irony in this whole section is we've been talking a lot about fairness and status as it relates to human individual Mm -hmm. people. And in all of these, the person that is going to go through the most suffering and be killed is the one that deserves status. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about fairness, when he gets to the cross, there couldn't be a more complex picture of unfairness than what happened to Jesus. And so even in the way we're approaching these stories, as we look at these individuals, 
the irony is the person that we haven't talked about the most is the one who deserved the status, deserves fairness, deserves that, and yet laid it all down for a ransom for many. Yeah, in verse 28, if we hear, you know, it is the king, it's the Messiah, it is Messiah Jesus who did not come to be served. It's a king who doesn't come to be served. What kind of king is that? Mm. But that is our king, um, quite amazingly, a king who serves. And then, so why would we think we're disciples who get to be served? (laughs) Disciples of the king who get to be served, of a king who really serves. No, 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 that can't work. Mm. What should we do with that? (laughs) How should we live? Yeah, how shall we live? That's a good question to ponder as we wrap up this discussion about the Gospels as stories here on Discover the Word. And I think we have a better idea of how to answer that question because of our conversations about this narrative, storied approach to the Gospels. Reading them for their storyline helps us hear that following Jesus means following his mission to serve others. Rather than focusing on self-promotion and self-interest, we serve a king who serves. Well, you've been at the table with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and our special guest, Janine Brown. Thanks, Janine, for leading us through this discussion. It's been a great hour that we've spent together. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Discover the Word. encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Now, our mission and all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we would invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.